Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. Today is Saturday, April 15, 2017, and welcome to today's edition of the Voices for Racial Healing podcast on Blog Talk Radio. We are live, and I'm pleased you're following along. I'm your host, Tishka Smith. I'm really excited today to be joined by our featured guest, Philadelphia author Terry Lyons. But before I bring her on, let me remind you of a few things here. First, I'd like to uh, encourage you to follow the Voices for Racial Healing podcast on Blog Talk Radio to receive the latest updates on upcoming episodes and to access archived episodes. Also, the podcast is on iTunes. Our website is VoicesForRacialHealing.com. We're on Twitter as at HealRacismUSA. Use the hashtag VoicesForRacialHealing when tweeting us. And consider becoming a Patreon donor to ensure that this project can continue. It's becoming more and more urgent that we highlight the work that so many people are doing to promote and advance radical healing and reconciliation go to www.patreon.com forward slash Voices for Racial Healing for more information and to become a subscriber. Finally, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle at both uh, networks is at I am Tishka Smith. Links to everywhere I am on the internet can also be found at my website, tishkasmith.com. Okay, uh, before I bring Terry on, let me tell you a little bit about my friend. She's a wonderful friend, colleague, collaborator, and a, a very talented writer and actress and so on and so forth. Um, but before I do that, please, if you have a question or comment for her, please call in at 516-387-1796. Philadelphia native Terry is an award-winning storyteller, actress, keynote speaker, and author of eight books, including her latest, the one that we'll be talking about today, entitled Light of the August Moon, which is a collection of short stories of modern history with a poetic twist. Stories of the American experience spanning the roaring 20s through the disco 70s. Let me read for you the back cover of this wonderful book that I've been um, just enjoying over the past week or so. Quote, there is nothing new about trying times. Light of the August Moon is a short walk through modern history, capturing our celebrities, trailblazers, brave souls, and common folk trying to make their way in this world from the Northern migration through the civil rights movement. History occurs every month, but so many events either occurred or culminated in the month of August. August, the month when all things ripen. Without further delay, let me jo join me in welcoming Terry Lyons to the show. Uh, hi, Terry. Hi, sister. How are you? I am fine, fine, fine. I had a few little glitches before I came on, but I think I got it all worked out. I want to thank you for joining me today um, to talk about this wonderful book that you have written 
and it's timely and it's beautiful, it's moving, it's disturbing, it's all these things. And uh, Mm -hmm. hopefully we'll spend the next 90 minutes um, delving into that. You'll be reading from um, the book and we'll be talking a little bit about it. Um, But before we get started with that, your story, Mm -hmm. your personal story is so fascinating and inspiring. And, you know, I've been talking to people about it, but I just want you to briefly share in your words how how you came to be an author of eight books. How did how did that all come about? Wow, that's a long story. Okay. Um, to make the long story short, in my past life, I was working in the world of science. I was in corporate America. Had a really good job. Pay was good and life was good. But after a while, it became incredibly boring. Oh, goodness, sickening boring. And I guess it was around the time of Y2K. Year 2000 was coming up. Remember that? And everybody was afraid that you wouldn't be able to go to the banks and and everything was going to shut down and, oh, people were preparing for the end of the world and all these strange things were happening. At the same time, um, more or less, I mean, maybe around 98, 99, 2000, it was all in that, it happened gradually. But uh, radio, I remember, became homogenous. You would hear just a few songs all day long. Reality television uh, became the big feature on prime time. And uh, conversations became bland. Uh, The politically correct had infected almost every corner of culture. And everything became just kind of dead, bland, uh, monotonous. I was in a world all day long where I had to pander to the likes of whatever the mainstream culture dictated. And it Mm -hmm. left me empty. It left me just spiritually dead. So Mm -hmm. I had to find some place of refuge. I know I'm alive in here somewhere. And it's the kind of thing, sister, when you had work all day long. I was the only black female in my entire department the entire 20 years I was there. Girl, when Mm -hmm. I got home, I was hungry for some collard greens, some Isaac Hayes, some Marvin Gaye, something to (laughs) let me know, yes, I am still alive, past the cornbread, uptown Saturday night. I had to get that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so (laughs) that's kind of where it began, but uh, my mom Uh was still living at the time. We talked. Like mother and daughter, we talk mm-hmm. like sisters, we talk like mm-hmm. good friends, and she mm-hmm. was bringing in that culture that sustained black folk during hard times, mm-hmm. common sense that was tried and true, common sense that is stable throughout the course of time. Um, you know, we we began to live in a culture where one day something is good and the next day it's not. Uh, they say, don't eat butter, eat margarine. Next time they uh, say that something in the margarine is not good for you. 
First they say, eat fish. Let's don't eat red meat, eat fish. Then they say, well, don't eat the fish because there's too much stuff in the water. You know, so everything was, was in flux. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to have a sustainable sense of self when everything around you was in flux. My basis went back to my home, my people, my history. And that planted the seeds for me okay. to research history even further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, I mean, you know, you know, we've known each other for, for a few years since I actually oh my got goodness. here to Philly. Yeah, I met way not, back. Yeah, yeah. And one of the one of the things that struck me as beautiful about your writing and your approach to writing were two things. Your your incredible grasp of history and your relationship with your parents. And you mentioned both today. And, you know, that answered my next question, which is who or what inspired you to write? Um Talk real briefly about the books um, that you wrote before Light of the August Moon, because many of them highlight the relationship that you had with your mother in particular, your parents um, caring for them in their later years, um, what that was all about, your relationship to Philadelphia, seeing Philadelphia, Black history through their eyes. Um, your relationship with music and how that music um, flavors your experience or flavored your experience and how you saw the world. Um, just, you know, just go through the, you know, just your, you know, all the writing that you've done up until this point and how those well, influences flavored those, those projects. Okay. Um, going back to mom, we would sit at the kitchen table, and, and I'm a big fan of the kitchen table. I think that's what's missing in our society today is the kitchen table. We would sit there, and Mama would tell me about um, her life coming up. Mama was raised by her grandmother, grandmother, who was a slave as a child. And Mama brought that history to me of my relations from Westmoreland County, Virginia, right near the Rappahannock River, and their migration up to Gwinnett, Pennsylvania. So Mm -hmm. I began to take notes on those stories because it took a lot to get it straight. So I took uh, notes on everything that Mama told me from the depression and the the outhouse and, and the farm and the artesian well. And, and wrote it down in my first book that's entitled, Let Me Tell You What Mama Said. Uh, because mm-hmm. people at that time, uh, they, had, they had sensibilities that you just simply don't find today. It seems as though everyone has to be instructed on tips and tricks on just how to get through the day. Whereas once upon a time, we knew that. We knew how to get through the day. We knew how to improvise. We knew how Mm -hmm. to depend on one another to solve problems that were beyond us going at it alone. So that book, let me tell you what Mama says, captures um, uh, the Sunday dinner table. It captures me being introduced to my history, and it captures Mm -hmm. uh, how Philadelphia was uh, right towards the end of World War II when when Mama first came Mm -hmm. to 
Philadelphia. I'm talking about when white folks lived in Strawberry Mansion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and, wow. Yes, and this is going uh, the late 40s, 46, 47, 48, all, all in mm-hmm. that time. Um, after Mom and Dad met, as time went on, my father became a band leader. Well, mm-hmm. first he was a sideman, and this is when he learned about the different clubs that were all throughout North Philly, particularly North Philly and South Philly. Ridge Avenue was a block party. And you could go into one of these clubs with your what they call your act. That would be your instrument. And for Dad, it was his guitar. Mm-hmm. And he would play with a little side band. And then later on, as time went on, he had his own band, and Mama became the vocalist. This opened mm-hmm. up a brand-new dimension of exposure, exposure to all different kinds of people in North Philly, South Philly, West Philly, uh, parts of South Jersey, even uh, different towns in Delaware. And that music at that time, oh, goodness, it was so beautiful. Live music was all we had. That music was brought into the home. And so I learned uh, how Dad would take notes from a record and write it on to sheet music, break it down mm-hmm. for the band, first and second alto, first and second tenor. He would break all of that down. And to hear music, hear a song being built from the ground up, in other words, at one rehearsal, I'll hear just the reed section. That would be your brasses. Uh, and I would just hear the same 32 bars or so over and over and over again. The next week, you okay. would bring in the rhythm section. And you know, I, I would hear that. And that has it left an indelible mark in my soul. I cannot deal with technology when it comes to music. It has to come to the soul for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Just oh, go ahead, go mm-hmm. ahead, go ahead. Go um, ahead. <laughs> I'm I'm looking at I'm looking at I have them all lined up here. Um, another book I wrote, take it from the top, take it from the top. It captures the '60s because that's when we were at the apex of almost everything. Uh, we had the cabarets in Philly, and jazz was big. A lot of jazz was going on. We had uh, the cabarets. We had big cabarets because we were not allowed in the Sheraton and the Bellevue, the Barclay, uh, the Ben Franklin Hotel. They were not open to us yet. We had the Imperial Ballroom in West Philly, 60th and Locust. Mm-hmm. We had Mercantile okay. Hall in North Philly with that, Broadmaster. We had the Venango and the Orchid Room and, and all these different uh, uh, ball, well, ballroom dance, I guess you would call them dance halls. Yeah. And this was a time when we did not have a lot of legislation that we have today. In other words, we were struggling to get the right to vote, particularly in the South. Um, we were not admitted to a lot of not only places to enjoy ourselves, but to have a job or a decent place to live. We were in that mm-hmm. struggle, but we didn't kill each other. Now, we had fights and arguments. Yeah, sometimes in the back alley it would get awful bloody, but 
we didn't kill each other to the level that we do today. We knew how to party and have a good time. We knew how to fellowship. We knew how to have an argument and get mm-hmm. over it. We knew how to do okay. that. We knew how to take care of each other's uh, children, right? No child mm-hmm. was left alone. Uh, your child was always welcome to my house for a pot of stew or whatever it is that I had to offer, you see. So mm-hmm. it was a culture. It was a culture that we had that went from the church to the school to the streets to the home, and it was homogenous. There was a civil law that kept us together through these difficult times, north and south, all that I'm coming from. This is okay. where I'm coming okay. from, yeah. Yeah. So as as you built as you're building this career as a writer, making this transition from one life to this new life, uh, you are meditating on community, um, mm-hmm. how the community rally together in, in light of all these struggles and you know, racism, so on and so forth, um, really conjuring up, you know, a time where black folks just knew how to band together and um, take care of each other, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is important because it's it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where we live in an era now where our community has been fragmented by so many different factors, so many different influences. It, it chronicles a time that we may or may not be able to get back. Right. Right. You know, I, it it all depends on us. You know, so many Mm -hmm. factors fragmented our community integration, um, economic opportunities that allowed some of us to move away and um, so on and so forth. But reading your books reminds us of what, you know, earlier time, a time when, you know, things on the outside of our community were very, very dangerous, very perilous. Mm -hmm. Um, But within our community, you know, there was a lot of love. There was a lot of, I mean, I'm not saying, I don't want to, I don't want to um, idealize this time, but it, you know, it definitely was um, a time for us to share a time for us to love one another, um, mm-hmm. to figure out ways to work out our conflicts, to build and support and nurture our institutions um, mm-hmm. in light of the fact that mainstream culture didn't, you know, didn't want us around, you know, it exploited right. us for our labor and basically said, you know, post slavery, post Jim Crow, we really don't want you around. Um right. And I see your books as a as a record of this time. Um, so, what was the impetus behind? I mean, what was the thing that said, you know, I need to write light of the August moon? And why did you choose to focus on the fifty year span of history from the twenties through the seventies? Okay, I focused on history from the 20s through the 70s, because to me, they were the most fascinating decades of the 20th century. 
mm-hmm. America as a whole was really with the Industrial Revolution. Um, roads were being built, cars were being made, electricity was coming into people's homes, radio was just kicking in around the mid-20s or so, mm-hmm. consumable goods that had never existed uh, were coming to fruition. Um, people were uh, moving north to this huge expansion in Chicago, New York, Philadelphia. Railroads were going out. Uh, you could go across the country now. And, mm-hmm. and, and so it was very fascinating. And, and this was the time when people were beginning to have mobility, mobility that they had never had before because the transportation mm-hmm. simply did not exist. And so I can imagine how people were living with, I don't know, candles, oil lamps, kerosene, and now electricity is coming in. Just imagine Mm -hmm. that. Imagine uh, using an outhouse forever, and now homes are beginning to have indoor plumbing. Oh, my goodness, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Just to go from Philadelphia to Atlantic City, day-long journey once upon a time. Mm-hmm. But then when cars yeah. came in, it was reduced to a day trip, you see. So that yeah. is what made it fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. That's so a lot, of just, a lot of advancements um, that made it possible for Americans in general, black folks in particular, to move around and right. – um, and expand their horizons and see more and do more and, and so on and so forth. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What was um, your other question? I forgot your other question. No, I was just saying, what was it, the, the impetus for writing? Like, what made, like, what was the, do you remember the moment when you said, you know, I need to write this book, this eighth book? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that also came, too, from watching, um, I do a lot of reading. Uh, so I've mm-hmm. I, I read many different books on that part of history and documentaries. One documentary, I'll never will forget it, that it came out either 2000 or 2001. Now, he talks about jazz, obviously, and he talks about the musicians that made this jazz possible. But as a backdrop, he was also hinting toward what the musician was going through in their personal life and the struggles America was going through at any given point in time. And that led me to read more, to learn more, to uh, mm-hmm. listen to different lectures, to read different books. And so I I got busy with that. And after a while, it's like I have all of this stuff in my head that's kind of all over the place. And so I began to write to give it some order. And and it was therapy Mm -hmm. for me to to learn about it and coalesce that with the story that Mama told me. Because in some things, I was like, wow, I remember Mama told me about that. And so with Mm -hmm. that, I would explore it even further. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's really fascinating that, you know, that uh, a film actually was among one of your 
biggest influences on your mm-hmm. work. Um, yeah. And and his documentary was um, quite good. Um, got a lot of people talking about jazz, interested in jazz. You know, the resurgence of jazz um, happened, you know, around those intervening years. People mm-hmm. realized that this was a treasure that needed to be, <laughs> you know, we needed to invest in and we needed to support and mm-hmm. we needed to, you know, better integrate into our cultural um, awareness. So that's that's really um, that's really something very notable. Um, yes, because dance had died for a while. Yeah. Um, I'll mm-hmm. say like maybe from the '60s and through the because rock and roll, rhythm and blues, Motown, uh, Stax Records, and then later on disco came in, mm-hmm. and 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 uh, jazz was on life support, mm-hmm. but it was resurrected, yeah. I think, when, like, for me, it was resurrected when Wynton Marcellus emerged, because mm-hmm. when I heard him, he was just a throwback to the big band days. He was a throwback to those uh, big Saturday night ballroom dances. Oh, my goodness. When I heard him, I fell in love with that man. And I've been following jazz ever since. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Marcel's. Yeah, he's yes. I'm a fan of his too. Yeah, yes. he and his and his brother. I mean, the whole family. Oh, the I mean, whole family. You know, from, uh, Branford, yeah. that's his brother. Branford yeah. and yeah, the whole family is mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. very talented. Um, Absolutely. And you you know you know they they're from New, you know New Orleans and. Mm-hmm. And you make reference to New Orleans in, and this is a great segue into, um, you know, digging into the book here. Um, mm-hmm. You make references to New Orleans in the book. Um, so what I want to do is I want to, I want to, I want to spend time. I want people to hear you read. Like um, when you and I started talking about having you on as a guest, you sent me links to um, to you reading excerpts mm-hmm. from this book on YouTube mm-hmm. and we talked a little bit about how you produced um, those segments on YouTube and if and people haven't listened to it they need to go hear it because you're the way you read is just so inspirational um, mm-hmm. and you know as as I've watched your career blossom into acting and storytelling like you can hear all those influences come together in these readings that you do on, 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 on YouTube. Um, but I want people to hear you live read. Um, and so what we've done, what we agreed to do is to have you read one selection from each decade in the book, um, okay. starting with the 1920s and um, a passage called we've here. Yeah. Um, and what I write here is that it's about the tough but necessary adjustments Black people had to make um, upon moving from the southern United States to the northern cities. And according yeah. to Wikipedia, the Great Migration was the movement of 6 million Black people. I mean, that's, that's huge. It's like one of the biggest yeah. migrations ever mm-hmm. out of the rural South to the urban Northeast, Midwest, and, and West that occurred mm-hmm for many, many uh, decades, my mother and her family being part of that great migration, um, mm. 1916 and 1970, according to Wikipedia, 
Um, mm-hmm. My mother came from the South to Chicago um, during the later years, but your this piece we hear said obviously earlier than that. Um, mm-hmm. The Great Migration is an important chapter in American history, not just Black history, but American history. And a lot of people had a tough time adjusting. And that's what I really loved about this piece. So I want you to, I want to, you know, I want to talk about it after you read it. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you do your thing. Terry Lyons reading, We's Here. We shook the southern dust from our feet for the last time. By foot, mule, train, or truck, Dixie is at our back, and a new day is ahead. Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, we made it here. Yes, thank the Lord, we's here. But it don't feel the same. All that we've ever known is gone. The warmth of familiar relations. Sustenance across the wide open fields that swallows up the evening sun into the lower 40. The smell of the wood-burning stove, gone. Doesn't seem quite real just yet, but we's here. Ooh, we've got honking horns and loud machines, so many people in so many streets. Look at all of these cars. Skyscrapers blocking the sun. The storefront church right next to the bar. Lord have mercy. The shoeshine boy is asking for a dime. The evangelist warns us the end of time is near. The undertaker on the ground floor in the doctor's office right upstairs. You know, city-fied folk walk and talk so fast and always seem to be in such a hurry. I wonder where they're going. It's hard to understand what to do next. And it's hard to understand how. Every door is shut tight until we get to the belt, the bottom, or uptown. <laughs> With no more to offer than cold water flats, kitchenette, or the second floor back. But it beats the plantation shack and we's here. Yes, we's here and it hurts. Because we're put to shame by our own people calling us simple-minded and backwards, like they are afraid and they only speak when the rent is due or when they're looking for a nurse, a butler, or a maid. We traded bow weevils for roaches, the outhouse for a stopped-up toilet. We traded farm fresh air for the funk of a run-down building and a tower of stairs, but we's here. Slowly lynched, packed up on top of one another, fussing, expired tempers pouring blood into the street, slowly dying, losing our grip on this thing called hope, fighting to breathe our own air. But we patched together parts of down home that we missed the most, our music and food, our song and dance with the best of folks who share and enjoy what we're longing for. And then it's back to the Madam's Kitchen, Mrs. Factory, (laughs) Master's 
cleanup boy. But we's here. Yes. Thank you, Lord. We's here. All right. That was Terry Lyons, author of Light of the August Moon, reading We's Here. I can't do it like you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, the powerful thing about it is like the refrain, we's here. You keep repeating that. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I want to ask you about this piece is whose voice are you speaking as you were doing this research on the Great Migration? Which, what voices came through to you the strongest? Because I'm, like, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, I'm a photographer, so I'm always, like, visually, like, connecting with things um, and people and places. And I'm imagining a woman, mm-hmm. middle-aged, kind of worn down, you know, mm-hmm. she's the one who, you know, made it happen, packed all the food, packed all the, you know, the belongings of the family, made mm-hmm. sure that the route from where they were leaving to where they were headed and going um, was mapped out. Um, and finally making it and being like, I'm tired. Yes. <laughs> but we, you know, we're here. We made we're it. We're here. And yes. And now we've got uh, to turn our attention to a whole new set of problems. <laughs> right. Yes, because they, they were tired. They had overcome so many setbacks. First they had the money, then they didn't. They found a way, and then it was gone. In your mind of photography, imagine Ethel Waters. Mm-hmm. Imagine Rochester, Eddie mm-hmm. Rochester. Imagine uh, Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. Imagine Nina Mae McKinley and their tenant farmers, sharecropping. Mm-hmm. They want to get up off that field in the worst way. Yeah. They went out what they needed to save their little nickels and pennies and it just didn't seem to work. I mean it was years in the making and they finally found a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's a there's a sense of jubilation. Um we've here, you know, but then there's mm-hmm. this sort of resignation upon arrival and getting settled in and realizing, you know, we're we're living a completely different life from what we were accustomed to. So we's mm-hmm. here, you know, we's mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. and we're going to try to make the best of this. And mm-hmm. what keeps us grounded is a sense of home, a sense of where mm-hmm. we came from, bringing with mm-hmm. us those um, <clears throat> cultural practices, you know, yeah. parts of down home that we miss the most, music, food, song, and dance. Right. You know, the right. sense of community keeps us grounded. Yeah. Um, it's a very poignant piece. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like it sets the stage for the rest of the book because, you know, it's all about how black people make these adjustments and retain a sense of resilience in the face yes. of so many different challenges. 
Yeah. Um, and and all the music and the food and the community helping to sustain us as we face all these different challenges. I yeah. mean, it really yes, just sets the stage for you know. Yeah. So, um, is that what you wanted people to take away from reading reading this piece? Yeah. What I wanted them it's they the people in the South heard that the North was the place to go. It was the land of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it was. It, it was. In many right. ways, that is true. Um, but it, it wasn't exactly the streets paved with gold, as many of them may have thought. Another mm-hmm. point to remember is that uh, many of our ancestors migrating from the south to the north were not necessarily welcomed by the African Americans who were already here came up earlier, had acquired the cosmopolitan lifestyle, mm-hmm. the cosmopolitan fashion and language and, and, and everything. And so when you get these folks coming right up off the field with their overalls and their country talk and their, mm-hmm. uh, their broken English and that southern vernacular that brought back painful memories, Many black folks up here were ashamed. We were, they were ashamed right. of their southern relations. Mm-hmm. And uh, that led to internal conflict uh, and strife in some ways. And so while people coming up here from Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, thinking that they're going to have a, a, a welcome wagon for them, found that they did not. So yeah. not only do they have to deal with uh, white folks who don't want to be bothered with them, maybe not as ruthless as the southern counterpart, but nonetheless uh, mm-hmm. discriminated against them and weren't very nice to them. In addition to that, now they got to deal with it from black folks as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which is painful. I mean, it's a painful reality. And you write about this. There's one piece. You're not going to read it today, but it comes through very clearly in the in the piece called uh, "Let's Have Church." Um, Oh yeah. You know, for me, it just you know the 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 strife within the community between those blacks who probably had advantages because of the lighter color of their skin. Mm-hmm. Or and or were long established in the northern cities, looking down on you know recent recent arrivals to the north from the south who were probably darker skinned, less educated, mm-hmm. definitely you know less um, oriented to the ways of the city, um, you know. So the conflict, the strife. I mean, and the striking thing for me is 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 we still deal with this in 2017. Right. You yeah. know, this is not, this hasn't gone away. We still have not resolved the issue of colorism and class within our community. Um, and I don't think that society wants us to. Like, there's no real incentive to solve it, um, you know, as long as the system is set up the way that it is. But mm-hmm. um, you really brilliantly incorporate all these strands of conflict. And celebration in this piece, we're we's here, we's here, we's here, we's here. Yes, thank the Lord. 
um, moving on, I wanna I wanna make sure that we have enough time to cover the um, all the selections that you agreed to read. So jumping ahead to the 1930s, you um, you stated that you wanted to read a piece called Three Chords and and Twelve Bars, which is about the blues. Yeah. Um, the blues being an important part of American musical history and culture, but also the blues is a way for black folks to, <laughs> to you know, to cope, um, you know, to um, deal with one another, to love one another, um, to be honest about the circumstances in which we live. And one of the notes that I made was that it refers to the blues, a soundtrack of the African-American experience and also the Great Depression. I mean, this was going on in the background. And one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was, why did you situate this piece about the blues in the 1930s versus another decade? And was there a particular song that came to mind as you were writing this? Or, you know, you, you referenced several artists. Um, but, I, but I was wondering if you were playing something in your collection that that sparked you, that inspired you to write to write this piece. Um, I guess I was thinking, I was thinking a lot of different things. At any given time, I can have four or five thoughts running through my mind, and uh, sometimes that's the frustrating part about writing. Uh, what what do I mm-hmm. put in? What mm-hmm. do I leave out? And uh, mm-hmm. that can keep me up for days. Uh, okay. But with this particular one with three chords and 12 bars, I wanted, first of all, to simplify the music because mm-hmm. uh, musically speaking, uh, that's what it is. You you just have three chords and you have 12 bars, and you can do anything with it. It is mm-hmm. one of the many ingredients that brought about the other genre of jazz. Uh-huh. Uh, without blues, we wouldn't have jazz. Right. With, without right. blues, we wouldn't have gospel. Without blues, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have rock and roll. Right. Uh, we wouldn't even have R&B as, as we know it. So it is the building block of all other music. And during the 30s, if it wasn't for music, I think a lot of people, black and white, would have lost their mind. It was the glue that kept people sane enough to endure the trying times of the 30s uh, with, the, with the Great Depression. Uh, so mm-hmm. that, that Mississippi blues from the Delta, oh, goodness, I love it, and the polyrhythms from the Caribbean islands, and all of these different ingredients kind of stirred in a pot, and jazz was born. Now, the jazz age was mostly during the 20s. By the time mm-hmm. the 30s came along, the the music had moved from the jazz age to swing. So this is when you had the big bands. This is when you had Benny Goodman, uh, Artie Shaw, uh, Jimmy Lunsford, uh, what's his face? Uh, Duke Ellington was just coming in, right? Count Basie was just mm-hmm. coming in. So this is when you had the swing era. All these big, big – Kay Kaiser was another big one, Um that that came in, but it all started with the basic song, uh, the basic chords of three chords and twelve bars. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how it. Started. Okay, 
So that's how it started, and I will let I will turn it over to you, uh, Terry Lyons, reading three chords and twelve bars on Voices for Racial Healing. Start with any note, take it up three, and bring it down four. That's all it takes to make one chord. Now multiply that by three, and that's all you need. You can moan and testify. You can beg and plead whatever is on your mind, good or bad. Just set it free. Whatever you're hoping for, play it on the piano or the guitar while sitting on the levee or in the jute joint. I tell you, it's three chords and 12 bars, and that's what makes the blues. <laughs> Knocking at the back door music. Dark-skinned cousin to jazz. Yeah. The devil music church folk claim, but it has always been the backbone of rhythm and the base of soul. Because blues tells the truth about what everybody is going through. It ain't polite. It's right down front. Like when my man don't love me no more, he packs up his things and goes right out the front door. Oh, this thing of goodbye keeps ringing in my ear. I just want to walk the back streets and cry to purge the pain that's cold and raw. That blues captured in three chords and 12 bars. Don't you know some of the best loving I ever had? I had no business with. But it was too good to let go. I had to work hard to keep it on the down low. Now, I don't mind doing right, so... It feels so good when I'm doing wrong. Yeah, that's the show. Enough blues that gives a powerful lyric to my midnight song. Now play that harmonica and give me that gritty delta moan. Let the timbre expose my tender flesh and bone that's longing for just a little love and peace in this world. And bring in that guitar that speaks to the isolated core of my soul. Flatten that D, but keep it in a minor key so folks can taste the acid in my angry tears coating every single note of my 12-bar melody. Come on now and walk that bass. Put some thunder on the floor. Go way down in the basement and give me what you got. Yeah, it's good and hot now. We're on the hellbound trail. I'll meet you at Highway 61 and Route 49. Don't ask me where I slept last night. Just keep those chords rocking under the deep blue lights of a back road down home funky good time. Sunhouse testified about people grinning in your face. Blind Lemon Jefferson's Black Snake Moan. Bobby Bland said you got to hurt before you heal. And you're going to go down slow, running, trying to make a 100, because 99 and a half just won't do. Running from the devil and reaching for the stars. Yeah, that's the stuff that makes the blues. Locked in the age-old three chords and 12 bars. Wow, that was Terry Lyons. Reading from her latest 
Light of the August Moon, three chords and 12 bars. As I was sitting here listening to you, Terry, read this piece and talk a little bit about how you segued from writing um, into acting. And I've seen you in a few things. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And it it comes through as you're reading, you know, um, the acting influence. Um, You know, I'm not an actor, so I don't don't know the jargon, but um, you bring, your voice brings the words to life in a way that um, it's two-dimensional. You're reading, you know, you're holding a book and you're reading the words, but it becomes three-dimensional and so nuanced to hear you read the words. Um, you can, it almost transports you to a smoky basement, um, sweaty dancing and, you know, yeah, juke joint. Yeah. jamming. Yeah. Like, or juke joint or, you know, somebody's basement, somebody throwing a yeah. rent party, you know what I mean? That's like, right. And, you know, furtive glances across the room, people in dark <laughs> corners huddled up. You know, lovers who don't have any business being together. That's right. I had no business with it. I had no business. You know you don't need to be at that juke joint, Jermaine. You need to go all home with that. But the music is so good. And this woman next to me, I love her, and I, I, I can't stop what I'm doing. You, you know, hearing you read brings these words to life. So I want to talk about, just briefly, about how you were able to segue from writing to storytelling mm-hmm. to acting um, and how those, how branching off into, the, into those areas influences your writing. Yeah. Wow. Um, I had no intention of acting that that was not mm-hmm. on the table for me. So I thought, uh, but I was approached by someone who mm-hmm. offered me a small part in a play. Mm-hmm. And I told them straight up, I don't act. I don't know how to act. Don't worry about it. I'll coach you. I'm like, are you sure about this? I don't want to go up here and make a fool of myself in front of all these people. Don't worry about it. You got it. I see it in you. So they saw uh-huh. something in me that I did not. I absolutely did not see in myself. So, with working, coaching, mm-hmm. studying, and then stepping out onto the stage for the first time. Uh, so goodness, I hope I remember my lines. You know, you go through that kind of thing. Uh, but then I, I put myself into the character. I became that character, and the rest was a natural flow. It mm-hmm. really was. It really was. Yeah. I, I never knew I had that capacity. I never knew it. Mm-hmm. And I use and, that as a lesson for everyone that you never know what's locked inside of you. Hmm. Okay. Mhm. Mhm. And so you just have to you just have to try. At least you know if an opportunity comes up, mm-hmm. you know barking at it isn't probably gonna unlock anything. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to right. muster up the courage to say you know I'll try this at least once. You yeah. know what I mean? And um. But I hear the, you know, I hear the acting come through in in your reading. Um, what's happening with you as you're reading the words? Like, how does it feel? Like, I just want to get into the process here. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels um, as if I'm there, as if I'm mm-hmm. that person, as if I'm personally struggling with a particular conflict or dilemma. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just put yourself in any uncomfortable shoes and think mm-hmm. about that. And your your guard is down. You're not trying to be cute. You don't care what other people think. Uh, you're not trying to impress anyone. It's mm-hmm. a testimony of where you are, what you're feeling, and it has to be expressed. And that's the uh-huh. thing about music. What could not be discussed, because there were serious consequences to openly speak, could be put in the form of music. So it mm-hmm. is that musical expression that that gave us our soul, that that mm-hmm. that uh, gave us our uh, relationship, our fellowship, right? Mm-hmm. So when you put yourself in those shoes and you're feeling some kind of way about <laughs> probably everything, uh, once you're able to get that mindset, it should be easy for most of us to do, uh, the expression mm-hmm. will come out. But you've got to let go. you got to let go. Just let go. got to let go. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay, I'm not afraid for well, people to see me cry. I'm not afraid mm-hmm. for people to see my anger. I'm not afraid for people to see my tender parts, my my vul- I'm not a, I'm not afraid of that. There was a time I had a big hang up. But as oh, okay. you live, as you go mm-hmm. through different things, you get past so many things. You get past yeah. a lot of stuff when it comes to people. Now either you get mm-hmm. it or you don't. If you're with me, let's heal. If you have an issue with it, the door is to the side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> Preach. <laughs> Keep um, on living and you'll you get know, there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's it's you know, as an artist, you is there's a there's there's a there's an automatic vulnerability, right? You're putting out in the world um, an outward expression of your innermost conflicts, joys, you know, um, challenges, hangups, like you said. Um, and when you put it out there, it's kind of like you you you're relinquishing control, and you know people are either going to connect with it or they're not. Um, and you know, part of us wants the validation, but above and beyond that is a need to do it. Like there's a drive to create that goes well beyond caring about whether or not people are going to accept what it is you put out there. And so there's a there's a certain sense of fearlessness that goes along with that. Um, yes, you just say, forget it, I'm going to put it out there. You know what I mean? Yes. You just like the yes. courage. And what I admire about you is your courage to just, you know, you, you stepped off of one life into another, and you said, I'm just going to put it out there. You know, I'm going to put it out there. And people have responded to you where, you know, 
<laughs> from open mics, I remember watching you at open mics, to then you just breaking out, and now you traveling. I mean, you're on the road, you know, speaking, giving talks, motivational speaking, you keynoting, you know, um, to the point where I had to be like, Terry, can I fit you in? You know, what's your... <laughs> For you all who don't know, Terry Lyons is a big deal, right? And so, like, and that is all because you took a chance. You took a chance and you said, I have to bring to life this part of me that was lying dormant all these years out of necessity, out of Mm -hmm. need, out of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, being an adult, quote, unquote, you know, doing the things that society says we must do um, to be responsible and say, you know what? I can't. This is sucking the soul and life out of me. And yeah. uh, people are relating to, you know, they relate to you, you know, going on your Facebook page and kind of seeing how people respond to <clears throat> the talks that you've given, being inspired, mm-hmm. being moved. Um, it's all because you you decided to take a chance, and so the blues is about taking a chance to me, yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah. people feeling inspired by that have created because of the blues. Blues music, like you said, was a building block of American music. Without the blues, we wouldn't have jazz, we wouldn't have gospel, et cetera, and so forth. Right. Um, you know. Right. So there's there's the calling um, that is inside of every one of us. And this is what I, when I get the opportunity to speak to children, that, yes, mm-hmm. get your education, no question, and, and get that job. Yes, absolutely. But there is a calling that is inside of you. And as it matures, it will not give you peace until you hmm. recognize it. Yeah, I I was tormented for a while because I didn't know what was wrong with me. Maybe I am losing my mind because so often I was in a funk. Nobody did or said anything to me, but I was always maladjusted and out of sorts. Mm -hmm. What what is that? What what is that? And I found myself having to write something down, having Mm -hmm. to make a note of something, having to listen. To, to music, I, I had to get a dose of uh, oh Billy Holiday, my goodness, uh, Duke Ellington when with um, oh I can't think of his name right now, but oh Johnny Hodges, that's it, Johnny Hodges, oh my goodness, if you listen to uh, Daydream, I've got it bad and that ain't good with the Duke Ellington band featuring Johnny Hodges, it's something that just nurtured the core of my soul. That was my mm-hmm. medicine. I got high. That. It was how I got high. And Mm -hmm. when I was able to get rid of the world that I had been stuck with all day, I came alive. I came alive. And I found a dimension of my soul I did not know existed. I was able to think and meditate and create and write, coalesce with the history from my parents. And Mm -hmm. that can lead to possibilities that would never occur to you in your mind because it is your spirit, it is your calling that is dictating the next move. It has nothing to do with intellect. 
and, and this is what people have to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know it's from the spirit because yeah. you can't always explain. Right? If it's right. from, if it's an intellectual basis, you can explain that. You you can write that up. You can write a proposal. You can write a report. But when it's from the spirit, it's vague. Only thing you know is that it is. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. So, in for the you know for um. I'm looking at the time here, and I want to jump from the 40s. Yes, uh, Mm. like I said, the time goes so fast from these things. Oh, we always do this, don't Uh, we? Yeah, yeah. This is good stuff. It's good stuff. It's stuff that needs to be documented, recorded. Someone told me that one of the reasons why they thought what I was doing was so necessary was because it gets in the process. and give space to people who create, creators, makers, artists, mm. to give them, you know, opportunity to talk about process mm-hmm. um, in their own words. So it's not me, like, trying to speak for anyone. It's, you know, it's mm-hmm. the space for you and others to say, this is what I was thinking, doing, feeling when I created, wrote, sang, performed mm-hmm. this piece that focuses on healing, healing being the thing that I'm so fascinated with as a way to move past trauma. And there's so many traumas in American history, um, you know, and jumping over the 40s where you had World War II and depression, Mm -hmm. you know, folks are still trying to, you know, make it in a world where, you know, economic opportunities were limited and, people were asked to sacrifice, make sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And people were called upon to fight. Women were called upon to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that created a whole new shift in, in, in society. You know, when the men returned, black men in particular, returned home from the war after fighting, they realized that they were returning to a, a, a retrograde world. They were returning to a society that had no problems asking them to fight, <laughs> right? but then wanting to relegate them back to, you know, back to the back of the bus, to the colored, right. you know, water fountains and bathrooms, going through the back doors to perform. Mm-hmm. And black people said, no, enough is enough. You know, we're going to, we want the fullness of life that was promised to us, the, the fullness of life that we fought for. And so mm-hmm. that's why I want to jump over that to the 50s, because that's when you saw the pushback. Levittown is the pushback. You know, what people nowadays are calling white backlash. What we're seeing yes. now with Trump mm-hmm. is backlash that mm-hmm. can send us reeling into, you know, circumstances that we may not be able to recover from um, mm-hmm. versus saying we all, you know, there's enough for everybody. Yeah. Um, Levittown is an example of people operating in a scarcity mentality. So I'd like to, I'd like for you to read Levittown, if you would, Terry. Um, yeah. So go ahead. Okay. Oh, here I am. Levittown, the mm-hmm. one in PA, the place where white post-war families were able to get a new start, clean streets, 
new schools, and safe parks far away from the grind of the inner city life. All measures were firmly in place, and every effort was made to keep it all white. Then William and Daisy moved in. An invasion to the lily white dream. Petitions went flying about. Meetings were held. They screamed and complained, determined to do whatever it took to get that black couple out of 43 Deep Green Lane. William Myers was an engineer and could well afford to live where he pleased. He wanted a nice home for his wife and and to live a quiet and peaceful life. But instead there were death threats screaming through the phone. Mobs surrounded the house, and they were pelted with rocks and stones. The local police dragged their feet, having very little interest in the Myers' safety needs. State patrol had to take control in order to clear the street. The Myers kept their cool and their dignity intact, even when they looked out the window and saw that dreaded Confederate flag. The air shrieked with awful names and carried the funk of cross-burning smoke. The Myers endured Levittown rage. The oil man was chased away. Milk and bread never came. They had to walk through the fire of hatred just to get to the store. Their windows were broken out, and they continued to hear those awful shouts of red meat anger day and night. Quiet sympathizers wouldn't dare stand by the Myers' side because they too would be vilified and chased out of town. After a while, it simmered down, but there was a big difference between law and order and peace. The Myers didn't leave because they had the right to stay, and they quietly stood their ground in the dog days of August 1957, just before the Little Rock Nine had to pay the same dues. All of this, so we can choose where we work, live, and go to school because this is America. This is America. And that was Terry Lyons, author of Light of the Argus Moon, reading uh, Levittown, um, a selection from um, her newest. And Terry, one of the things that struck me as I read this, hmm earlier this week and, you know, listening to you read it was the idea of white silence, not, you know, this concept is nothing new. Um, Having security and comfort um, Mm -hmm. has to be paid in silence for white people. And so when we talked, when we talked a few months ago about what we would talk about on this podcast episode, we talked about white people and, what you call peeling back the denial and introspective cleansing. Um, This idea that we discuss the glory, and I'm quoting here, you said, we discuss the glory, but not the dirt. And Levittown is the dirt. You know, Mm -hmm. I went and looked at the history, and I know you did the research, and that's what you do. You look at the research and let the research guide your creative process in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, the creator of Levitt Town basically set up this development to not sell homes to black folks. He didn't want to sell homes, and he wouldn't sell homes. But the way this happened with um, William and Daisy Myers, 
it kind of did like a back backdoor kind of thing. And white people like went crazy. They went crazy. <laughs> yes, you know, made it very hard for this couple. Um, uh, Levittown. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, he uh, after after the okay after the war there was a housing shortage, and you got these, mm-hmm. you got tons of DIs coming home late forties. Uh, Levittown existed in New York. There's a Levittown in New York, right? One here in Pennsylvania. And one in Jersey. I don't know if it was Lawnside. I can't remember what the town was. But there is a Levittown in New Jersey. But it's not called Levittown. It's, it's another town that doesn't come to mind right now. Anyway, okay. Mm-hmm. what was written in the clause, uh, what, what was written in the deed, many of the deeds, was a clause that these homes would not be sold to black people, not even on resale. Right. That was in the clause. So mm-hmm. when you have your black men coming home from the war, they were not able to use the GI Bill the way the white men were. They were able to get homes with next to nothing down, mm-hmm. minimal mortgage payments, much cheaper than the rent they would have to pay. And these homes oftentimes came equipped with a washing machine, which was something new and innovative. And mm-hmm. by the time the 50s rolled around, even a television set. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. See? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is, and see, this is how black middle, uh, white middle class, rather, this is how middle class America was established. You know what's really odd? It took government initiatives, starting from the New Deal right on through, to get poor white people to middle-class status. Mm -hmm. It was through a lot of those work programs. It was through uh, those Levittown homes that established the middle class. Uh, They were able to get relief. They were able to get whatever assistance they needed to get up on their feet. And it's strange now how we look at many of the uh, programs or initiatives that help poor people get up on their feet that are sometimes looked upon as handouts, handouts, right? uh, Not necessary. As uh, well, why don't they just get a job? Um, Yeah, if they could get a job that would hire them with fair practices, maybe that would be possible. But in a real world, uh, that. That didn't happen, and, and right. so the very the very initiatives that brought America to middle class are now being demonized as as being handouts to lazy people who do not deserve them. Isn't that something? <laughs> well, that's the denial that we're talking about. It's it's the yes. it's the idea that you know I'm going to believe this narrative that is completely and utterly false. Mm-hmm. In exchange for a measure of security and comfort, mm-hmm. and um, knowing that my whiteness gives me something that other people won't have, and I see your work as this this act of of you know kind of like taking a hammer to that bull crap. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. no, the history is this, and the history says this. Mm-hmm. And you can believe one thing, but the, the the historical record 
speaks to a completely different experience. And yes, white folks got handouts. I mean, if you're going to label a handout to black people, then mm-hmm. you can't call it something else when it refers to you. So right. if black folks are getting handouts, you got handouts too. No one, right. no one did it on their own. And no. we need to stop believing that crap. Right. You know what I mean? So, right. Um, so that's that's why this is so important. This story about this this development. I mean, it was it was carefully planned. It was very much exclusionary, mm-hmm. and it fed into this false narrative about white people doing it on their own. You mm-hmm. know, Levittown wouldn't have been Levittown without the help and intervention of the government. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't have been possible. Wouldn't have been possible at all. No, no, and, because when they came home from the war, they didn't have anything. It was the GI Bill that helped many of them uh, uh, be able to afford the mortgage for those homes and go back to school, by the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's very important that that is noted. And I think because people don't necessarily read history anymore, the fact that you use... um this medium to incorporate his history to talk about these very painful issues in our history. Mm-hmm. You call it taking the disconnect out of history. That's what I love about it. You know, using poetry and short stories and, and prose to, to, to take the disconnect out of history. And I'm sure as you go and have, you know, perform and talk with, with different people that, they see the disconnect and then they're able to talk about it and they're able to reflect on it as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what's so inspirational about this work that you've done. Um, but really this is about white people. <laughs> you know, this piece <laughs> to me is about, you know, white people owning up to several things. This idea that, no, they didn't do it on their own. You know, they did have a hand out. They had a, you know, they got help. And two, this huge contradiction between values and reality, that everybody wasn't free. We have so many layers of denial to work through. And and some of it, and, and this is really the sad part, is that we understand, we, we know how uh, many of the white folks are in denial about a lot of things. But mm-hmm. we also have a significant African-American population that has bought into that same ideal. You know, um, many times I have met them. Oh, my goodness. It's so sad. Um, I have met them who they have a mind that they made it to where they are on their own, mm-hmm. that with hard work and discipline and sacrifice, you can make it. And that's true. There's no denying that. But yeah. there is a whole reservoir of history that enables those possibilities to exist. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's heartbreaking. So I feel like the last two decades, the 60s and the 70s, kind of delve into that, you know, challenging these narratives about 
getting there on our own. You, you know, in the 60s, you write about the Freedom Riders, um, you know, this massive um, protest that yeah. kind of broke, you know, kind of broke the stalemate around mm-hmm. um, segregation and traveling and, um, you know, without without certain people, we still would be riding on, you know, segregated buses. You know, they're, yeah. you know the, the South was no joke. You know, I don't think people really understand. And this wasn't that far long ago, right? That's right. You know, this didn't happen like 300 years ago. This was like several decades ago. This, was, this wasn't that far back in history. No, it wasn't. Um, We're talking about 55, 56 years ago. Mhm, mhm. And yeah, in historical yeah. terms, that's not that long. That's still in our lifetime. Right. There are people alive who actually lived through this. That's right. I mean, and can recall in vivid detail what happened. Um. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we have about <clears throat> oh my goodness, ten minutes left, and I want you to read. I, I'd like you to read. Freedom Riders. Um, okay. If that's okay. That's okay. All right. Um, Terry Lyons Amer- reading Freedom Riders. Go ahead. Okay. Um, America was a panacea of freedom all over the world, except for the Deep South, where antebellum ideals were reserved. But it was about to be shaken down to the root when black and white dare to sit side by side. Twelve souls from CORE challenged the local and federal laws, and it was challenged in 1961 with the Freedom Rides. Now, the Supreme Court struck down segregated travel in 1944. That's when Irene Morgan won her case in federal court. But the South didn't pay it no mind, and that's why these warriors got on the bus. They didn't have much protection or much support. If anything, they were told not to go. They were warned the Klan was waiting, and they would never make it out alive. But they boarded that bus in Washington, D.C., setting out on a freedom journey all the way down to New Orleans. Black folk were sitting in the front, right next to white, and defied the waiting room signs. Now, they hadn't had too much trouble until they reached that Alabama state line. Rabid anger infested the Greyhound station. Rebel mobs surrounded the passengers with shouts of raw hatred. They flattened tires and broke out the windows. Then they threw some kind of bomb inside the bus, and it filled with smoke. Everybody was afraid the bus was going to blow, so the mob dispersed and the riders fell out the door, gasping for air and choked up with fumes at the mercy of demonic rage. The riders suffered broken bones, concussions, and some got their teeth knocked out. Through what seemed like an eternity, a patrolman's warning shot cooled off the fiery, out-of-control rampage. Meanwhile, the trailway folk didn't know what was going on in Anniston, and they made it all the way to Birmingham before they got their taste of southern welcome. Silence turned to mayhem in a matter of seconds. Police were told to disappear. So the Klan were free to mutilate, torture, and kill, assured they would not be arrested and charged. 
Now, these are the same people so worried about violence from the black man when, in fact, they are the true founders of the flash mob. Well, the world was watching as foreign affairs were in a fragile condition. How can America speak and define the parameters of civility with blood flooding down southern streets? How can Mr. President hold his head up and tell us what to do? when his citizens are dying from domestic tyranny. Well, fresh troops from Nashville were on the Freedom Ride Tour. That where the beaten and battered D.C. crew left off. The roar of the Greyhound hit the Dixie Road, only to end up stuck at the depot because the drivers walked off. It was just too dangerous to carry on. Mass meetings were held. More fires were set. Taunting tear gas, baseball bats and chains, a foot to the head, an iron pipe across the back. This was the price they paid. So we can ride in peace with some dignity, and we don't have to go through all of that. Now, there was no violence in Jackson, but the deal was made. The riders got off the bus and were escorted to the paddy wagon. From there, they went to Parchment Prison, and that's where they stayed for at least 60 days. But by now, the events were all over the news, and more riders came to town. And they packed up those jail cells. I mean, they packed them tight. 100, 200, 300 strong, singing freedom songs, singing freedom is coming. Yes, and it won't be long. Well, thank the Lord. The president finally heard their plea for justice and their cry for help. Federal troops arrived to control the tension. The attorney general met with the Interstate Commerce Commission as rabbis, priests, and all kinds of folks from everywhere, both black and white, joined in the Freedom Rise until the 22nd day of September when those signs were removed. That's what it took. Just to ride the bus. Yeah, they did it in the name of freedom, but they also did it for every one of us. More brutal attacks were ahead. Fighting for the right to exercise what the Constitution said was already ours. Where would we be had it not been for their blood? Where would we be had they not dared to demand the right to the American dream? So let us all salute and honor every single one of the Freedom Riders. Yeah. And that was Terry Lyons reading <clears throat> Freedom Riders from her latest book, Light of the August Moon. And as I was sitting here, Terry, listening to you read this, yeah, the comment that you made about history being built on the backs of those we will never know. These are your words. Um, came to mind that mm-hmm. these nameless freedom riders mm-hmm. made it possible for us mm-hmm. to do something as mundane as riding the bus, you know? That's right. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's a powerful thing. Um, yeah. You know, this this idea that, you know, we don't get from point A to B sometimes with a charismatic leader. It's the courage of just people, regular everyday people who decide, you know, enough is enough and I'm going to do something to help 
move society in a better direction. And and this and this piece really exemplifies that. Um, and I want to thank you for the work that you do, the writing, the acting, the storytelling, the speaking, the educating that you do to bring people of all walks of life closer to history. Um, mm-hmm. It's important work. It's very important work. Um, mm-hmm. With the last four minutes, I want to give you a chance to tell people where they can find you on the internet, how they can buy your books, um, what you have coming up. So maybe they want to hear you speak. Um, they can find you and, and, and support you in that way. So where where are you on the internet? Where can they follow you on social media? Well, first, Sister Tishka, I want to thank you yes. for having me. I, I just want to uh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate you, all of you, from, from the bottom oh. to the top. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you. I appreciate um, that. Yes, indeed. Uh, they people can find me on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can follow me, or some can be my friend. They can find me on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I do occasionally post on Google Plus, but Facebook and LinkedIn would be the best way to uh, contact me. I okay. will be happy. Will you share me? Mm-hmm. If yeah. you share those links with me, I can post them up on the episode page. That way, people oh, can uh, find you. Uh, uh, put in my uh, the, the link to my Facebook page. Yeah. Um, okay. And the link to my what is it? My my um, LinkedIn page. Okay. All right. Yes. Also on LinkedIn. Do that. And you can uh, do that. Okay. And your books are on Amazon and uh, Amazon dot com and um, Lulu dot com. Right? Yeah. 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 And the best way, uh, they can go to either one. They can go to Amazon uh, or they can go to Lulu to purchase, oh, it's a body of work there. Yes. Yes, That'll be fine. And I think they might even be able to send me a message on Lulu as well. Okay. Okay. All right. So everybody go buy the books. Yes, please. (laughs) Go buy the books. Go buy some books. <laughs> Don't get kindle. The book. Get the get the wood. Get the, get the, get the trees in your hand. Not those <laughs> trees, but the trees like book trees. Anyway, right. <laughs> <laughs> support this um, wonderful Philadelphia treasure, everybody. Terry Lyons, uh, storyteller, actress, writer, poet, keynote speaker. Eight books. Go get one. Yes. Go get all of them. Go get some of them. And Follow on May her 13th, on social media. On May mm-hmm. 13th, uh, from 2.30 to 4.30 p.m., I'll be at the Winfield Neighborhood Library, uh, 5325 right. Overbrook Avenue. That is Saturday, May 13th, from 2.30 to 4.30. Okay. So there you go. If you follow her on social media, you'll be able to get those details. Get her books on Amazon.com, Lulu.com. Follow her on social media. Um, I'll be putting up links in the episode to those uh, platforms. And as we wind down, thank you, Mm -hmm. Terry. I appreciate it. Thank Um, you. 
Thank you for joining us on Voices for Racial Healing. And um want to encourage everybody to follow us on Blog Talk Radio, VoicesForRacialHealing.com. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. No, we're not. We're not on Facebook. We're on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're, you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Um, anyway, Terry, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Happy Easter. And we're going to sign off here. We got 30 seconds left. Anything, any parting words in 25 seconds? <laughs> Let us love. Let us love. Love it. Yes. Everyone, let us love on this Easter weekend. Have a safe and wonderful weekend. Thank you again, Terry. And yes, thank you. Peace out to everybody. All right. Let us love. All right. Thank you.